we're in the middle of a series, and we're going to be wrapping it up soon, but we're kind of moved, turning that corner uh, in this series called Deconstructing Deconstruction. Um, and the biggest thing to remember is this, okay, especially when it comes to this term. There is no one-size-fits-all narrative around this word. All right, people, can, people might say this, but they're really just questioning a true, they just have a question of faith in terms of sanctification and in terms of growing. That's fine. But they might use this word because of how it's being used culturally. Um, people might literally be just tearing down everything they've ever believed, um, just demolishing you know, the, the Christian faith. Um, and, and we have to pay more attention to that, obviously. But there's really, again, no one size fits all uh, in terms of how people are using this. And I hope this is a helpful series for you. Again, going back to the series verse, the verse that we were using this whole series is that we want to do our best, right? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Not approved or denied like salvation. This is not about salvation. This is about the work that we do. Um, And again, it goes specifically into we're going to be approved that we need to not be ashamed, workers that are not ashamed. Uh, Why? Because we're rightly handling the word of truth. That's the context that Paul's sharing this with Timothy. Be someone who is, is doing their best to rightly handle the word of truth. And it goes on to say, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. This is just some translations use foolish, uh, worthless conversation. Because listen, we're, we're so easily distracted. We can get so dialed into arguments about stuff that just doesn't really ultimately matter. Matter of fact, we're going to talk today about some of those things in terms of secondary doctrine and some other things that, that maybe you know, aren't really worth the, the, the effort and conversation we sometimes put into it in terms of denominations. Here's the uh, just picture we've been giving you about the building blocks of faith. Uh, the cornerstone is the Word of God, who is Jesus as well. And so we talk about the idea of this cornerstone building our faith around our understanding of who God is. That's our theology. Uh, the informed beliefs, the doctrinal belief structures that we have about the things we're supposed to do or not do. That's part of our doctrine. And then the practice is how we live it out, right? It's our actions and behaviors and how we live this out with one another and, and, and in our lives. And it all ends up with who we are, right? That's part of our identity. It's, it, it matters to who we are. And a lot of the deconstruction starts with who we are, who we want to be, and trying to make our kind of the lens, if you will, of our theology and our doctrine, our practices kind of make that fit better who we're comfortable being or who we feel like we want to be or who, you know, uh, just kind of, we'll talk about that more, but that's kind of how that works. And we talked about some of the big reasons that people even walk through deconstruction conversations. And this is, you know, I went from the kind of the, the least to the most. Conformity over unity, that's a big one. You know, act like this, be like this. You know, that's a lot of tribal nationalism kind of thing. Existential burnout, meaning that people, we told people for years they can find their purpose uh, in, in Christ, and they show up at the church trying to find their purpose in the church or in God in some sort of weird way, and they're like, I, I can't find it. That doesn't feel any better. Legalistic disunity or formulated disunity has a lot to do with just the hypocrisy in our lives where we say one thing or we believe one thing, but we act another way or we think another way, and that's just very, we can't sustain that in terms of the disunity. Institutional hurt, which is a very real thing, whether it's a church uh, that you've experienced church hurt, you've experienced other Christians who have hurt you, you've experienced a family member or people that, you know, they're supposed to love you and, and in the name of Christ have sort of judged you and cast you out and those kind of things. That's, that's a very real thing. Uh, social ideology is what we hit last week, which is just this really big, big, very hard to, 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 to nail down into one sermon. That's why I've, I said you got to kind of listen to all these. 
Um, but we kind of attacked that last week around how does sociology work in terms of kind of our faith, in terms of how we become who we are. And it's really this kind of chicken and egg situation where it has a lot to do with our expressive individualism. That's basically the, the, the things that we deem as true. You know, is truth something external and fixed or is it internal and fluid? Um, you have to decide what is true. And so we talked a little bit about when that's the case, you know, we will oftentimes find an ideology to match how we feel. Um, and that ideology can be political ideology, cultural ideology, social ideology, sometimes even religious ideology. There's, there's ideology that is just another source of truth for us, what we call it, that affects our theology and our doctrine and our practice. And, and, it, and, it, and it turns us into sort of the kind of Christians we want to be. And that's, you know, we talked a lot about that last week, sort of adding an adjective. Now, very quickly, let me just say this. I, I thought I said it last week, but I'm going to be real clear today. Uh, this particular chart, this graph, or whatever you want to call it, this by no means is adequate enough for you to take and then try to determine if someone is a Christian or not. Everybody with me? Nod your head if you're with me. Yeah. You're going to have to nod your head a lot today, or the sermon will be twice as long. So nod your head if you're with me, right? This is far too simplistic. I mean, it's just not enough in terms of that. And I always follow the rule. Since you or I don't actually grant salvation to people, it's a very difficult thing for us to judge whether people are saved. We don't grant salvation. Jesus, all Jesus told us is that we would know them by their fruit, right? We would know them by their fruit, and that's it. That's all we get. And then Jesus t- deals with the wheat and the tares later, if that makes sense. So that's all we get. Don't, don't, use these, don't use this as ammo, so to speak, for Cousin Betty. You know what I'm saying? Like you're trying to figure out, is she really a Christian or not? That's not what this is for. How do people get here and why would they get here? Well, we read some of the scripture last week that had dealt with this. You know, they thought themselves fools, but they, or they thought themselves wise, but they became fools. This is how we said it to the church in Rome. They traded the truth about God for a lie, right? They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. We all do that. We, we all make idols out of all the things that God, you know, creates for us. Wealth, security, kids, family. I mean, we can make idols out of pretty much anything. Instead of worshiping the creator himself who's worthy of eternal praise. Amen. And when we allow this to kind of be a part of our deconstruction, if you will, or even our reconstruction, I'm going to go to the next verse, uh, what he said to the church in Galatia, this false teaching is like a little bit of yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough. We have to be very careful. Because sometimes that false idea of God or that false view or that false ideology or that expressive individualism, that kind of tail wagging the dog, so to speak, like it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect everything. It's going to spread through the whole thing and kind of make it all bad, all right? So last week, I just challenged you, you know, are you living in such a way that you're trying to be an adjective blank Christian, right? You're trying to add an adjective to modify what Christian means. That's, that's all that is. It's to modify what a Christian means in terms of how you want to define it, right? Or, which we said last week, are you a follower of Jesus? That's the closest thing we can come to in terms of the word disciple. I want to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And listen, don't kid yourself. We're all guilty of this next verse. You know, we're all guilty of this next verse. Well, we're going to figure out what it looks like to be right in our own eyes, right? But God examines the heart right? We will do all that we can to justify, to explain away, to find the loopholes and figure out how we can be right in our own eyes. But God is the one who sees through the heart. And as we're going to even see today, he uses the word of God to expose that in us. 
So here's where we're going, as we said last week. Um, or sorry, this is actually an example. I'm going to use this again next week, but I wanted to give it to you as well. This is the thing I wanted to add to last week's message, and I didn't have enough time. Sometimes, the reason I went to the, big on the social ideology, sometimes, guys, that whole adjective Christian, like I want to be a progressive Christian, I want to be a this Christian, a liberal Christian, a conservative Christian, sometimes that doesn't come about because of deconstruction. It comes about because we sort of classify our faith as separate from our lives. So it's actually quite simple. It's not deconstruction because there's nothing constructed there to begin with. Right? Everybody with me? There's nothing there. So what happens is we just sort of view faith as this like primarily spiritual thing. You know, I know where I'm going to go when I die. I'm so thankful for what Jesus did for me. I, you know, I, love, I love God, you know, that kind of thing. But none of that really affects our lives. Our, we categorize our lives and, you know, our family's different, our politics are different, our work, our hobbies, our finances, our morals, our sexuality, our friends, our, you know, our, our, our school. Like, we just compartmentalize a whole lot of stuff to kind of like, it doesn't really affect one another. So that's why sometimes you'll have somebody like, well, I'm a, I wanna, I'm a conservative Christian. What's that mean? Well, I'm a full-bore conservative political machine, but I, I also believe in Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's not really deconstruction, it's just... It's just, that's their life. They're, they have their life, and then they have their faith. And that, listen, this is, this is more of an issue of understanding salvation, understanding the gospel in terms of a full surrender to Christ. And don't fool yourselves. None of us understand what that means when we first come to Christ. I don't care if you were a little kid in Sunday school class. I don't care if you're an adult. Most of us underestimated when we came to Christ how much of our life we were going to have to kill and nail to the cross and die to. Everybody with me? So, so don't, don't just assume it's those people. We all do it. Part of sanctification is where God comes back. No, go back. Part of sanctification is where God comes to these boxes and comes to these things and is basically like, how, you know, there's a verse about finances and you go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. God doesn't tell me what to do with my money. Well, yeah, God actually does have a lot to say about money and finances and what you do and how, you, how you're called to live. And, and then you come to an impasse. And you're like, well, I, I don't really care what he says about that. And, and that's okay. Like, I I'm, I'm, understand. Sometimes when people come to my office and we talk and, well, I have an issue with this, I have an issue with that, and I'll show them. This is a good phrase. Show me, show me the math, right? Show me the biblical math. Like, not the weird common core thing where they use 18 pages to show one thing, Right? Just show me the math. Show me how you got there, right? Is this a secondary doctrine issue? Is this, you know, just tell me how you got there. And again, the majority of time, they're not going to be able to show me any biblical math because this, they don't care. Like the, the Bible doesn't influence this part of their life. We're, we're not going to, you know, go back to the next, that, that. yeah, we're like, we don't care what the Bible says about our money or about sexuality. Like I've had people in my office tell me like, you know what, Matt, just understand, like it doesn't actually, I've heard you preach and I've heard you teach and I've seen the things and I've actually seen verses and reference and so on and so on, but I just want you to know, it will not matter to me what the Bible says about this because you will never be able to convince me that it's wrong. And listen, thank God for their honesty, right? You're just never going to convince me that it's, wrong, that it's wrong, that it's a sin, that's it. And so we just, at that point, we just have to go, okay, that's fine. Like you're, that's just, again, not a, that's not an area of your life that you've surrendered to Christ, and you are going to struggle with that. I understand. So don't, don't, that's not deconstruction. 
But it does fall into the category of as we are reconstructing or as we are informing and educating our faith, what does that sanctification process look like in terms of surrendering these areas, right, these categories, so to speak, to our life to God? So today I want to talk, kind of turn the corner about not just the, the deconstruction model, but how do we reconstruct? Like, what are, what are the materials we use for reconstruction? Because this is where I told you the first week, deconstruction is not always bad. It delivers us the opportunity for healthy reconstruction, right? Understand, it's an opportunity. It doesn't mean that everybody does it. Some people can deconstruct and then literally walk away. But deconstruction doesn't always have to be negative. It can be an opportunity to reconstruct and actually understand what we're building and actually come out of this thing stronger and actually come out of this thing more understanding of God's Word, actually come out of this thing with a greater conviction of truth. That's possible as well, and that's kind of where I want to take us uh, today. So the materials for, de- for reconstruction, what do we need as we start with the Word of God and we see that it really does sort of drive all of these things in terms of the building blocks of our faith. The Word of God is sort of this primary resource of how it drives our theology, our doctrine, and our practices, and should be in order to kind of create who we are in terms of being followers of Christ. We have to lean in. And and I've had some great conversations about, well, how do we discern? How do we discern unhealthy church traditions and practices, right? Like, I, I I need the right tools to do that. How do I, how do I, how can I tell when something is primary or secondary in doctrine? You know, because listen, guys, we have a hundred denominations because of secondary doctrine. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but that's that's a lot. That's a ton of denominations split over secondary doctrine. So we need to have some tools, some understanding of, of how we look at the Word of God and how it informs everything else in terms of our whole life. Because that's how, that's what I really believe. Reconstruction is built on. So this is uh, the first verse we'll deal with. We I read this the first week, but this is from Second Timothy again, chapter three, talking about Scripture itself is God breathed. Another translation says inspired by God. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. It's useful for these things. It was given to us for this reason, and so that the servant of God, that's you and me, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That we have the Word of God, and it does all these things kind of all at once, right? It trains us. It equips us. It tells us what's right and wrong, what's good, what's bad, challenges us, reaffirms us. It does all of these things, trains us for the work that He's calling us to do, right? So that we can be thoroughly, fully, is another great word, equipped to do what God called us to do. But, you know, we live in a very skeptical season and age where people do struggle. It's, it's, it could be from what they heard as a kid. It could be, again, from lots of institutional hurt and other things. Like, they struggle with just the Word of God being what it is. Like, they, I don't know, I think, it's, I think it was written a couple hundred years ago. I think it was just written by men. I think it, you know, I think it's out of context. You know, so much of it was driven by dates and, you know, such different societies, and it doesn't apply to today. There's a lot of skepticism in terms of, of, of do we trust the Word of God in terms of, was it, was it written by men? Yes. Right? Everybody know that, by the way? You know that's written by men? Okay, good. All right. It, it, yeah, was it written by men? Yes. Is it written by God? Yes. Right? 
Is it confusing? Yes. Can we figure it all out? Probably not, but I'll help you as much as I can. How do we, do, how do we address that? Well, it's not brand new. Again, this is not brand new, anything, nothing's brand new to us in terms of that skepticism. Here's a way in which Peter was dealing with it to the church, and to, especially the Gentiles in the church, um, when he came to, you know, the kind of combination of Jewish and Gentile folks that he was witnessing to. Here's what Peter said in 2 Peter to the church. He said, look, we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. He's talking about, we, we weren't making up stories about Jesus, because this is after Jesus, of course. And it says, um, we, when he received glory and honor from, the, from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said, this is my dearly loved son uh, who brings me great joy. I lost my clip here. Hold on. There we go. Um, we ourselves heard the voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. They, they heard it at the river. Uh, they didn't understand what it meant. They heard it on the Mount of Transfiguration, which they got a much clearer picture of what it meant. And he goes on to say, but because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets, talking about the Jewish Old Testament. He says, we must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in the dark place until the day of dawns, and, and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. Basically, meaning it had a purpose to shine light, even to show up to who Christ was. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding, and I love this next part, or human initiative, right? Nothing the prophets wrote were like, I figured it out, I'm super smart, right? I'm super, I, I, I deduce this, I'm super smart. Or human initiative, like, wouldn't it be cool if this would happen? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw something out there and let's just see if God does it in 300 years. Like, that's, that's not how it happened. He says, no, the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So even Peter is looking back at the Jewish Old Testament and saying, look, you know, we've seen Jesus. We've heard the voice of God. But we also, because of that, really pay a lot of attention even to the Old Testament in terms of the Jewish Scripture that we have because, man, they, they, were, they were from God. They were given to us from God. And there's a significance to really seeing the Bible. It's 66 books and letters and documents and poems. And I mean, it's a collection of all these things. But there's some significance in seeing them as the Word of God, as one work, if you will, from God to us. There's a great thing. You've probably seen it shared on social media. Uh, this is from a guy named Chris Harrison. And he basically drew this, or basically had an AI draw it, so to speak, or computer draw it, where he... Um, he took about almost 64,000 of the clearest references, cross-references in Scripture, and kind of created this graphic to show the unity and show this one idea of the entire Bible. That's what all these things down here are, every chapter of the Bible. And you can go into, if you go online, you can go into this and see each one. Like if you can go to Genesis, and you can see not only the prophecy that Genesis, you know, put out there, but you can also see the cross-reference back to Genesis from, I mean, it's from the big creation to the throne room. We just sang that this morning. From creation to throne room, it's all Jesus. You, uh, the one I love here is Psalms. Look at this. That's just, that's just those, those tons of Psalms, how it cross-references everything. Uh, go to the Gospel of John. There's another great one in terms of John referencing the end, referencing the Old Testament. There's some really faded red lines that go all the way back to Genesis as well. It's beautiful. 
And, and, and here's the deal, like, this is one of those things that you've got you've to just settle at some point. doesn't mean you don't continue to educate yourself and have questions and figure out how it happened. But the reality is, is that, you know, the Word of God, these 66 books, I mean, it was written over 1,500 years. In a span of about 1,500 years, it was written, not only 40 authors, but then you add all the scribes and the people who, you know, the, the scribes throughout the centuries that copied documents and copied documents. Then you're talking about the languages because it was three, three to four languages, depending on who you look at in terms of Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and then there's some Latin that they had to, to, had to do as well. And so, you know, it's, it's all these scribes and documents. It took place on three different continents, Okay? It was at the center of these three different continents where they come together. Like, I remember that, that when they first saw this, they put it into this, you know, whatever the new AI thing is, this new chat GPT, and they basically said, hey, what's the statistical likelihood that this sort of just happened? And the AI came back and said, zero. Zero. Like, it's the actual likelihood that this sort of just came about outside of an actual author and creator is zero. And then you have, I pulled this from Isaiah because I just love the story of Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the most contested um, manuscripts in terms of original manuscripts that they thought, oh, this has been changed for years, so on and so on. This doesn't match any of the old stuff. It's not written the same way. And then, and then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they found Isaiah written probably about 100 or 200 years before Christ and they basically said, yeah, this is a scroll that could have possibly been in Christ's hands, this scroll, this Dead Sea Scroll. And it said it was the most accurate in terms of uh, recording and representation of Isaiah that they'd ever had. And so here you, you have Isaiah. This is what God said. The rain and snow comes down from the heavens and stays on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. And he says, it's the same thing with my word, right? I send it out. It always produces fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. Another version says, it does not return void. That's it. Why does it do all these things? Why is it so powerful? Why has it stood the test of time? Because he said it would. That's it. Because he said it would. And it's what we have in terms of our primary resource for reconstruction to build our faith on. It's the only thing we should be trusting in. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says it. He says, the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Right? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom, read those three words out loud, we are accountable. I'm going to do it again because everybody's in the room. All right, ready? He's the one to whom what? We are accountable. One of the greatest things about being born right now in this generation in the western part of the world with the connectivity that we have, we have more access to the Word of God and the understanding of the Word of God than anyone else has had in history. It's amazing. It's the greatest thing that could happen to you. You want what also happens with that? You're accountable and you will have zero excuses. None. You're accountable for how available and connected the Word of God is to you. 
and what it says and what it means more than anyone else in the world. And you're accountable for it. You're accountable for how you follow it, don't follow it, care about it, don't care about it, want to categorize it, do all these things. It doesn't matter. You're going to be accountable for it. That's the good and the bad. So how do we use the Word of God? And this is where I'm going to kind of walk us through some practical stuff today really quickly. Um, I want to give you just a few things that we use, tools we can use in terms of this reconstruction of how do we let the Word of God and, you know, just just penetrate and, and use it for building our faith and let it affect everything in our life. Well, the first is just simple, translations and commentaries in terms of understanding the Word of God. Translations and commentaries. Now, I'm going to read this quick verse for you in terms of the new early church. This was at Acts. This is Paul and Silas on their missionary journeys. They've been traveling to different cities. People are upset about what they're teaching. It goes on to say they, they took them to the people of Berea, and they were more open-minded than the Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. But I want you to notice they searched the Scriptures day after day to see if what Paul and Silas were teaching or if they were telling the truth, or what they were teaching was true. What scriptures are they talking about? Well, that's the only scriptures they had. They had the scrolls. They had, they had the Old Testament. They had the Jewish scriptures. So here they are hearing Paul and Silas talk about Jesus and the church and the, and the faith, and they used the Old Testament, the, the, the scriptures they had, to basically cross-reference themselves because scripture interprets scripture. Okay, not in some weird circular logic way. It just means that scriptures, we don't take scripture out of context from scripture. That's, that's, the, that's the way that works. Again, statistical likelihood, zero. So it's, it's the idea that it's like they, they did this just to make sure they were telling the truth. And it says, and as a result, many Jews believed. And so did many prominent Greek men and women. We are given some incredible tools to help us with our understanding. Now, let me go ahead and give you just a few quick lists. You can shoot pictures of this or write it down. These are just some of the few translations I like. You can like whatever you want. You can get into great arguments about translations and paraphrases and all sorts of things. I'm just going to give you what I have because this is some of my toolbox, all right? Um, and I just feel like this is the easiest thing to start with. I like the New Living Translation, the New International. I like the Holman Christian. I like the ESV. I like the NASB. I didn't get a chance to put it up there. I do like that one. I like King James. Why do I like King James? Because I the majority of Scripture I memorized as a kid was King James Version. All the where, wherefore art thou in my head is not from Shakespeare. That stuff did not stick. Okay, I just want you to know that. The Old Testament did, the, you know, the, the, the King James did. So a lot of times when I'm reading, King James will pop up in my mind, so i got to go read the King James just to make sure i got the right verse, and then I'll use other translations to help. Now, we heard this uh, down at one of our, our uh, conferences uh, about a month ago, and uh, Pastor Mike and I were sitting there, and the guy had talked about, I'd never heard this about translations, and he basically was like, wouldn't you love to have a group of scholars that like, their only job was to study Scripture? like to, to, to intently study scripture, wouldn't you love to have a group of scholars on speed dial that you could call and be like, what's this word mean? And he's like, and that's what translations do. He's like, you can literally call. It's like literally calling, you know, you're, you're reading the NIV and you go over to the NLT and be like, well, what word do you have? Beloved, what word do you have? Oh, be loved. Oh, that's interesting. You know, call this group of scholars up, see what they say. Call this group of scholars up, see what they say. Why? Because they're all pulling from an original Greek. They're all pulling from an original Hebrew. There might be, I mean, guys, the, the language that everything was written in was so vast in terms of what it could mean and what it does mean compared to the weak, and I hate to say it, weak English we possess. Everybody with me? 
Like there, there is incredible depth and picture to Hebrew, especially, let alone even the Greek. And so, you know, they're, they're all pulling from the same source, and so they might have a different word, but it's going to mean the same thing. Like it's just a great way to have these tools. Uh, by the way, the message is not a translation. It is a paraphrase, but the reason I like it, it's a paraphrase from the original Greek Hebrew text. Right? So the reason I like Eugene Peterson's paraphrase is I mean, he wrote it for his grandkids. He wanted his grandkids to grow up and read and understand God's Word. What a beautiful thing, right? I wish I was that, even a fraction that smart to be able to do that. So he took the old original you know, languages and actually paraphrased from it. So I actually love the message. It's not a, it's not a translation. I never will call it that, uh, but it's a paraphrase. Here's some commentaries. And what I mean by commentaries is how many of you guys have a study Bible? Raise your hand if you have a study Bible or have you ever read one. Yep. So you know how when you have something up there and then you go look at the little note in the bottom and it says, you know, back in the Jewish days, it did this and this and that. That's a commentary, okay? That's what it is. But believe it or not, they have commentaries for everything. They have commentaries for the entire Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, and New International is pretty good. Baker's very full. Matthew Henry's, I like his, is a little more reformed. Um, those are phenomenal, right, in terms of just getting started. If you want to really dive into study, especially, guys, listen, if, you're st- if you really are researching something and deconstructing something, do all that you can. You have incredible tools at your disposal online, usually for free, to go look at commentaries and read what scholars and people have, and smarter people than us have tried to work through and figure out. I love when scholars disagree. It makes me feel not so dumb, right? Love, I love reading when smart people argue about stuff. It's fantastic. Now, a couple other things that I think are helpful, uh, there's a concordance, Strong's Exhaustive is phenomenal. Uh, Holman's Illustrated Bible Dictionary is also really good, uh, especially if you're just reading, especially Old Testament context and you want to know what something meant, definition. Holman's got a great illustrated, you can, get, you can see pictures and have it illustrated with, you know, maybe, you're, maybe you're not a nerd like me, but I like that, that's, a, that's pretty cool, you know. Chronological Bibles are great too, you know, read it in chronological order, it makes my mind work, Okay. So there's lots of tools that we can use. Because why? Because as we let the Word of God inform how we see God, I want as much as possible in terms of trusted resources, in terms of the Word of God, and I want to trust what I'm, where I'm going to land, my convictions of the doctrine that I have, the practices that I'm going to live out. I want as much help as I can have because it determines who I am, determines what I, who I am in terms of my identity as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. And of course, guys, we are trusting the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to be given to us to help us in this. That's part of the Holy Spirit's role is to help us as we read and as we study Scripture. Here's number two. Biblically sound theologians, authors, and pastors. There's other people that are going to help you on this journey. want them to be biblically sound. Here's a great example. I love this passage from the early church. Um, This is a, a, a guy named Apollos. He was a, a you know, pastor and preacher, um, sharing, you know, evangelist, sharing the, uh, the good news and, uh, in the early church days. And so here's where we pick up Acts 18. Luke records this, that a, a Jew named Apollos, he was from Egypt. He was an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well. He arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He'd been taught the way of the Lord, so he'd been taught well. He, he was also teaching others about Jesus with enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. That's good, right? He's doing this with accuracy. However, he knew only about John's baptism, right? So his knowledge was somewhat limited. He was accurate, but he was somewhat limited. 
He goes on to say, then Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, and then they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. That's beautiful, right? Like, not only did the guy, he was speaking accurately, which is good. You want biblically sound people to speak into your life in terms of being accurate. Again, going back to Paul and Silas, the the Bereans were like, is that right? Let me check. Let me double check that. But you're going to have those people in your life, authors, podcasts, people that you're going to listen to. Like Again, God's going to use these things to help you in terms of uh, the resources we have. But we're always going to want to use the Word of God to make sure they're biblically sound, right? And even then, understand that it doesn't matter how long you follow Jesus, it doesn't matter how much you know about Scripture and everything else, you're still going to be able to, even, even later in your life, be able to learn something. Isn't that amazing? You're still going to be able to learn something, right? When the Hebrew says that it's alive and active and alive and powerful, like my wife and I will sit and talk about things, new, new, not new revelation, but like new application or things that we believe God honoring in terms of Scripture, it, it popped out at us. We didn't even realize, you know, we probably read it before, but whatever reason, we skimmed over it. And this, this time the Holy Spirit was like, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, right? Like that's, that's part of how, how the Word of God comes to life for us. So we have, again, we have all this this way. Now, I do want to talk about doctrine for just a minute, because doctrine is one of those things, if you don't have a good grasp on the differences between primary and secondary doctrine, you you could enter into some some deconstruction in your life, and not really, and and, and sadly, I I hate to say it, but you could throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And when I say baby, I mean baby Jesus, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. Primary doctrine, as we read in Scripture, is that primary doctrine means a primary belief that comes directly from God, meaning that you're going to deal with, you know, salvation by by His blood on the cross, the Trinity of God, especially in terms of of God being, Jesus being fully man and fully God, uh, the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of, of, again, the Word of God. Um, There's lots of those kind kind of sola scriptura things that are primary doctrines, okay, um, in terms of what, what we see in our lives as, as critical, not just critical for your salvation, but critical in faith and understanding God. There are also, listen, secondary doctrines that denominations have split over, right? Denominations have split over, like baptism. But we're going to baptize some folks next week. Baptism, believe it or not, is one of those things that denominations split over. And, and it's a primary difference. In there. It's, I shouldn't use the word primary. It's a big deal to them in terms of, you know, I talk to people and they're like, well, were you sprinkled as a baby? Were you christened as a baby? Were you dedicated as a baby? You know, and you guys might run into this, okay, because you've been coming a journey. Let's say you've had some other upbringing, but you go home at Christmas to your mom's house, who's Methodist, right? Or your in-law's house, who's Methodist. And they're like, you're a Catholic, and, there's, and you start talking about little Jimmy's going to get baptized next week. Whoa, 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 whoa. Will they go through confirmation? Right? It, it, well, it, how, are, how are they doing that? Oh, yeah, well, no, we, we, we already had them dedicated as, uh, uh, over here with our children's dedication when they were two. Wait, what, what, did they get baptized? No, they didn't get baptized. They got dedicated. Like, you know, and I mean, again, secondary doctrine, big deal. You know, it's in some denominations. Believer's baptism, which is what we hold to, you know, confession of faith and following in 
in a public profession of faith after that. Like, that's what we hold to. But I, listen, I was, I was raised in the Baptist church, spent years in leadership in the Presbyterian and the PCA church. I actually know the biblical argument for covenantal baptism. I could argue both. And the reason it's secondary is because neither one of them are, hear the words, wrong. Everybody with me? Neither one of them are wrong. Though they come with expectations and sometimes a little bit of structure that doesn't feel all that biblical. But, nothing, but listen, these people who believe this are trying to honor God. You say, show me the biblical math. They've got biblical math. You can see how they do it. And a lot of secondary doctrine is like that. Take, take not just another practice, but um, uh, you know, a lot of the charismatic churches are split over you know, the manifestation gifts, and whether it's speaking in tongues or praying, having a prayer language and so forth and so on. Like, that's a big deal. Right? Because that's a, such a huge part of their faith and walk with Christ. And you might not find that in the Baptist church. There's completely opposite ends. And yet these are doctrinal disputes, secondary doctrinal disputes, that, that, that neither one of them are necessarily wrong in and of themselves, but that they completely disagree in terms of what Scripture is telling them to do. Scripture is calling them to do. So you have to understand that does exist. There are those kind of things. Take historical practices, right? Historical practices. You know, what about uh, another big one in terms of doctrine is uh, women in the church. What, you know, are they allowed to serve as pastors? Are they allowed to serve as leaders? Are they allowed to serve as uh, elders, right? Because we have scripture, right? We have scripture that says certain things and we have biblical examples like Priscilla and Aquila and, you know, other people that have, that have led and done things God called them to do. And so you have this doctrinal, you know, dispute coming, but you can't change the fact that you also have just tons of historical influence of just male-dominated hierarchy of power, which is why so many, you know, especially in the Catholic Church, priests. Everybody with me? So this is, there's, there's a lot of stuff there. So you're going to go to a church that believes one way. And again, this is secondary. It's not going to be anything about salvation or about how you view God, but it is going to be how you are interpreting scripture. And it is going to matter to some people more than it matters to others. But this is not purpose or reason for deconstruction. And even when you are reconstructing your faith, even as you are building up your faith, guys, I'll be honest, there's a, there's a temptation to just read and listen to only the people that agree with you, right? They're only, uh, but, but one of the favorites, I mean, this is one of my reasons, my, my whole social media feed and everything gets all jacked up because I read such opposite opinions of mine all the time. Why? Because I always want to know why do they believe that? Why, why are the manifestation gifts such a big deal? Why do they believe you must be baptized to be saved? There's denominations that believe you must be baptized to be saved. And there's exceptions to that rule, but I want to know what that means. So you, you start going through the process, and you want to study it, not to challenge yourself, but just to say, look, I've got a pretty solid foundation. As I continue to educate my faith, I want to know. It will challenge me, but it might also strengthen me might also affirm things in my faith. So just know that that's all part of this in terms of reconstructing our faith. You are going to maybe possibly have some doctrinal differences, but just be really careful about how you approach those because it may not be an issue of, of white, right and wrong. It may not be an issue of black and white, and that's what the Word of God is for. The Word of God is there to help us walk through it. Here's number three real quick. Christ-centered community, okay? Christ-centered community and I'll try to make this brief. You and I were never, ever meant to take the Bible 
into a closet and read it and then try to like come up with our own doctrine and then walk out of that closet and be like, I figured it out. I got it. Everyone needs seven trumpets and everyone's going to march in a circle. And you're just like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I know where the circle part came from. I know where the trumpet part came from. Did your Bible stick together? Like, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of stuff there, right? We were never meant to do that. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish custom, it was very, it was very, very understood that the talking about text and the and the and the um, the what was called the binding and loosening of Scripture was a part of what they did. Especially the rabbis, the rabbis would do it, and then they would they would kind of compile their doctrine and they would put. It was called a yoke. That was what the rabbis' teachings were. A specific rabbi's teaching was a yoke, and they would bind and loose Scripture. And they, it was never meant to be done in isolation. It was always meant to be done in community. Here's a great verse that we love, Proverbs, as iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. One of the reasons we do groups at our church is not just for the social and emotional benefit of doing life together with other people and strengthening and encouraging each other in faith, because that's, that's part of the benefit. But the other benefit is that you're, you're supposed to talk about Scripture in a group. It's communal in nature, right? Why? So that when one of you has a weird hairball idea about what the Bible says, you have six, six others or five others that go, that's really dumb. You know, you say it in love. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you say it in love, but you do, you know, you're there to challenge one another. Like, ah, oh, you know, you're reading that one scripture, but I got six scriptures over here that, again, scripture interprets scripture. Like we got to be careful about, it was to keep us from being heretical. It was to, it's, it's meant to help us understand this. As a matter of fact, when, when Jesus says this, you can go read this on your own. This is in Matthew 18. When he talks about the binding and loosing of Scripture, he talks about being bound on earth and bound in heaven. He says, um, you know, where two or more are gathered, I am with you. So the context of when, he, when, Jesus, when Jesus said that, because we all use that out of context all the time, but when Jesus said it, he was actually talking about when you bind and loose Scripture. When you bind and loose things here on earth, it's going to be that way in heaven. Like, like this is the purpose of doing it in a community. And our Christ-centered community is important, not just from, again, emotional and and, and spiritual encouragement, but from actual interpretation, reading the Bible together. Now, I want to. this is my application, and again, this is a, on your card. You'll see it right here. We're going to read through a section of verses in Matthew 13, and then uh, I'm going to skip some and read the rest. But this is kind of our application today. We're not going to get to Psalm 73. But this is, this is where we kind of get to before we get into next week about, you know, growth as our spiritual growth, if you will, or growth stages. This is where we get to in terms of what can we really control, what does the Word of God look like in our life, and what do we look like in terms of the Word of God. And this is a great place where, where Jesus, again, through parable, is going to teach a very important principle. So let me jump to or start with, let's say, verse 3. It says, Jesus told many stories in the form of parables such as this one. Listen. A farmer went out to plant some seeds, and as he scattered them across the field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came along and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, so they did not have deep roots. They died. Other seed fell among thorns, and they grew up, and they got choked out, the tender plants. And still other seeds fell on fertile soil. They produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as what had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen 
and understand. Now, there's a sidebar that Jesus and the disciples, the disciples continually ask Jesus, like, why do you always got to be talking in parables? Why do you got to be talking in riddles all the time? And Jesus goes on to really help answer that question, like, you know, not everybody gets to understand what I'm saying. And he goes on to say, like, blessed are you who have eyes to see, and blessed are you who have ears to hear what I'm saying. But then he goes on in verse 18 and actually gives the full explanation to the parable. He said, listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the devil com- comes, or the evil one comes along and snatches the seed away that was planted in their hearts. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represented those who hear God's word, but they're all too quickly. The message gets crowded out by worries of life or the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. The seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as has been planted. The two takeaways from this for me is always the same. The seed never changes in the parable. The seed never changes. The, the, the potential of the seed never changes. It, it, it's the same today as it was yesterday as it will be forever. That's the representation of who God is. That's the representation of His Word. It doesn't change. What changes is the soil. What changes is the impact of where the seed lands. And isn't it interesting as Jesus gives those examples of, of, of where the seed doesn't really end up lasting into producing fruit, isn't it funny how all that sounds very much like people who are deconstructing their faith? Well, it's too confusing and I didn't understand it or, you know, it was, you know, it was here today and then I didn't feel that way yesterday and it wasn't, you know, the, the worries of life came along or church hurt came along and I was persecuted and, you know... I mean, a lot of these things sound very, very similar. I just loved my life too much. I loved the world too much. And I want my, I want to I live out the kind of life I want to live, the cr- kind of Christian I want to be. And that's not the seed that produces fruit. And it says, but the seed it does is good soil. And it always represents the soil of our hearts. It always represents the soil of our hearts. See, we go back to that, like, the Word of God is going to inform these things in our lives to the degree that our soil is fertile, to the, to the degree that we are open and, and conf- we're in a habit of confession of sin and receiving of grace and an understanding of God, like understanding and hearing and processing God's word, that's where the fertile soil does, that's where the seed does the best in terms of that fertile soil to be those followers of Christ, to be the disciples he's called us to be. Next week, we're going to continue with just, just the role of sanctification, right? The role of not only how we use all these tools to help discern, you know, some of the theology and doctrine and practices in our life, but the role of how God's Spirit works in and through us and helps us surrender those areas of our life that we continually want to kind of categorize away from Him. Let's pray together. Father God, again, I'm so thankful that your word is the thing that never changes. The same, tr- the same is true today as it was yesterday and as it will be forever, God, that I'm so thankful that we can, 
that your truth is absolute and fixed, that it's, um, we don't have to look inside to see who we are. We can look externally because you tell us who we are. And God, there's incredible joy and incredible freedom in that. And even as we reconstruct, even as we build and engage and inform our faith, using some of the tools that we have, God, just, just help us through your Spirit really dig in because what we believe really does matter to how we live and to the identity that we have in you. God, I don't want anybody to settle in this room just for, well, the Bible says it, but I don't care. The Bible says it, but it, I'm, I'm going to live my life the way I'm going to live it, and it doesn't matter to me. Don't let anybody settle for that, God. There's so much more in you, and we're so thankful for it. In your name, Jesus, amen.